You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Sarah New. I'm the community director here at Forefront New York City Church. Um, all pronouns are okay with me. Camera people let me know if this is it. Half our congregation is watching online, half is watching here. So we're in this kind of weird hybrid situation, but um, we want to make our services accessible to as many people as possible. So thank you all for being here, especially in person. It's really nice to like preach to faces that cannot a smile or just deadpan, not react to whatever you're saying. Um, I, you know, this sermon is going to be a little bit longer perhaps than normal, but it's, I hopefully, um, I, some powerful stories I hope to be able to share, so just drink some water and hold your pee. Um, I grew up in like a large family of about four siblings, and um, one of the methods that my parents had to kind of make sure we all held hands together and make sure, you know, not run away and kind of stay together in the crowd was essentially mind control because uh, they didn't sell the leashes, you know, back then and, and all the like weird caterpillar things that kids hold on to while they go to school in like Park Slope. Um, so they just said, if you let go of our hands, you will be kidnapped, ransomed, and sold as beggars, um, you know, and they'll cut off your tongue. They're like, we read this in the newspaper, and this happened to like a friend of a friend of a friend. And um, we're like, okay, I guess got to hold on to my parents' hands. And it, it wasn't until I was later I kind of realized, oh, like, you know, I grew up, my childhood was in Malaysia, like, Southeast Asia has a lot of trafficking. I think part of what they're worried about was, like, we would be sold into, like, sex trafficking. You know, they didn't kind of spell that out. Um, but I sort of pieced together the fears much later on. And then I encountered this kind of, um, you know, fear of, of sex trafficking later on in college, um, somehow, for, for whatever reason, I think you can deduce, it was very popular among evangelicals to be sort of anti-sex trafficking. Um, maybe you'll figure out why by the end of the sermon. It's, you know, everyone loves the story of like heroic white men saving women of color from their virginal innocence that has been lost and stuff like that. And so I was like, huh, interesting. Like this is coming back up in my life. Um, what, what's going on here? And trafficking, uh, I'm not going to really talk about it a ton in this sermon. It's like bad, you know, and, and complicated uh, as well. But well, the main thing I want to say here is the fact that trafficking was the main lens by which uh, I understood just what sex work was in general. Like kind of all sex work was sort of done, or maybe most was done because people were forced into it, because they were kidnapped, because they didn't hold on to their parents' hands, uh, you know, what have you. Uh, while walking through a busy street. And so I think subconsciously, what have you, I sort of had this assumption of sort of good sex workers or, and bad sex workers, or good victims and bad victims. So the good ones were those who didn't choose it, right? They were forced into it, and the bad ones were those who chose it and so sort of willingly, you know, sold their bodies for sex or degraded them or what have you. And um, you know, that's an assumption that, no surprise, I'm going to try to complicate and interrogate a little bit in the sermon. You might be thinking, um, this has gone on for five minutes now, why are we talking about this in church? Um, and I can give you three reasons. You know, you're like, is this a TED Talk, is this a sermon, both. Um, but, uh, you know, first of all, New York City has a, a fair, a pretty high, like most urban cities, 
high concentration of sex workers. Sex workers are in our neighborhoods, our cities, in our congregation. And so if we're called to love our neighbor, we have to kind of understand the systems in which they are embedded. Secondly, um, you know, we're at the tail end of our sermon series on sex. And Mackenzie started us off with a great sermon on purity culture, and we've talked a lot about sort of the ways in which uh, sort of particularly a subsection of American Christianity has instilled a lot of shame around um, not having sex in the proper ways, or masturbation, or what have you, and, and particularly blaming and policing women for tempting men, or sort of, you know, being seductive temptresses, or what have you. And, you know, through uh, listening through the sermon series, through listening to people preach, and also through this kind of Christian leftist reading group sort of started in this church we're reading. Um, we just finished up a book called Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights, which I think the virtual greeters will post in the comments. Um, I just kind of came, to, I just kind of put the pieces together and just realized when, that the criminalization of sex work is essentially the logical political extension of purity culture. And I will unpack that later on towards the end. So that's the second reason. Third reason is that sex workers play a pretty big role in the Bible, particularly in the genealogy of Jesus and in King David. So there are many reasons why, as a church, this is an important topic for us to talk about. Um, and so, um, and you know, I've been talking mostly about Christian assumptions around sex workers, but this is also the assumptions that our courts and criminal justice system make. Um, it is illegal to work in sex work, and in fact, we do have uh, the compassionate version in New York City, whereas you, you say you're a victim of trafficking, you are diverted into mandatory social work and counseling sessions. If not, you get sent to jail, so you have to do them. Um, but only 10% of people who are arrested say that they're victims of trafficking. So growing up, I really thought it was the majority, but really it's, it's the highest number possible really is about 10%, given the incentives people have to say that they are actually trafficked. So, um, I'm going to talk a bit about the genealogy of Jesus, and to save time, I'm just going to just tell you that there are 43 men in the genealogy of Jesus listed in the Gospel of Matthew. Of the 43 men, there are five women listed. Uh, two of the five, that's like 20%, what, something? Um, two of the five are arguably sex workers. You have Rahab the prostitute, literally named such, um, and Mira gave a great sermon on her a few months ago. I highly recommend you read it. And the other one I'm going to focus on is Tamar. Um, her story is a little less known. Super interesting. So uh, I'm going to talk about Tamar, but first I have to give a little bit of backstory uh, about who her father-in-law is. His name is Judah. Um, they're sort of 12 tribes of Israel uh, coming from the 12 sons of Jacob. Judah is one of the sons, and he sort of is the patriarch of pretty much the most important tribe, the tribe of Judah, because that's where King of David comes from. Jesus, Israel, as we know today, is pretty much from the tribe of Judah, plus like Benjamin, um, but not important for my sermon. Um, and so that's who Judah is. Okay, so we're going to read Genesis 38, and you will read. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah made the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shuam. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, who Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Okay, so the most important things here, we can address like death penalty stuff later on, but um, is Judah has three sons, 
and he marries outside of his tribe and clan, sort of frowned upon. Um, and so he marries a sort of foreign woman, or seen as such. And the first son marries a woman in Tamar, but he dies, and the scriptural you know, narratives interpret it as an act of God's punishment upon him. And this puts Tamar in a very bad situation. Um, you know how in scriptures they always like, take care of the widow and the orphan and stuff like that. So widow um, has a particular meaning. It's not just that your husband dies. Um, it's that the fact that your husband dies and there's no male son or a spouse or really relative who's, who will kind of vouch for you, defend for you, support you. So Tamar has no sons because this air guy died before you know, procreating. And um, so what, so what uh, legally, by Jewish law, essentially, technically, yeah, I'll just say Jewish law, um, uh, the, the brother of the deceased husband is supposed to provide, essentially, sperm to um, um, the widow. And because technology you know, doesn't quite work, they actually have to like, do the deed. Um, and so that's what happens, essentially. Um, and uh, we'll get a little bit into that, but Judah tells Onan, the brother of Er, to, to sleep with Tamar, the wife, so that she could have sons. And it, he really is a sperm donor, because the kids that he gives her are not his. They're going to be Tamar's. They're there for her security and protection. But he doesn't do it. Uh, if you don't know, the sin of Onanism is this, he basically pulls out, I think, essentially, and... Uh, I think it basically ejaculates outside of her body or what have you, and so God kills him as well. So, and, and you know, tough, tough stuff. Um, but, but it's, it's, like I said, the Bible's got weird stuff going on. Um, but, but it might seem just like God's punishing him for not uh, ejaculating properly, but it's really about him failing his social responsibility to a woman who now has no one really in her corner. And so I, this is a quote by Rabbi Shai Held. It says, in the ancient world, the prime issue is not whether a woman's husband has died, but whether there are any male relatives to be responsible after his passing. And so you know, even just simply the fact of knowing that someone has a husband, knowing someone has a son, can protect women from threats of rape, for instance. Because the fact that you have a husband who will go out and defend your honor, go out and protect you. So we're talking about physical security, not to mention, obviously, economic survival, Wage labor is not so much a thing these days. To survive economically, you need animals or land you cultivate. Women cannot inherit or own property. So Tamara is just put in a pretty difficult situation. Um, so anyhow, Genesis 30, 38, 8 to 11, you see Judah saying to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Shady guy. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. It's kind of like having cake and eating too, you know. Um, and Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. So Tamar is basically under like kind of a ticking time bomb. When her father dies, there's going to be no one left, really, to kind of vouch and defend and protect and provide for her. So she is a poor foreign woman, essentially, without, uh, was forced to live with her father. She's promised Judah's third son, but we'll read later on, that he withholds the son. He's like, this woman's a witch. She like, keeps killing my sons, essentially, in his head. I mean, he doesn't quite say that in scripture, but I, that's my interpretation. And so um, she's in a tough spot. What will she do? 
We'll return to the story of Tamar, but I'm going to talk now about a contemporary story um, that happens in our city. It's the story of a woman named Yang Song. So she uh, was born in northeastern China, 1979. And um, this is a photo of her, and this is uh, during 2013. It's a brother's wedding. So she's the woman on the very left. And her mother's in, wearing red, her brother's up there. Um, and it's, this is the, everything I'm sharing, this is not a friend, this is just someone I read about in the New York Times and um, have kind of followed over the years. So uh, in around 19, she moves from northeastern China and gets work in Saipan, this kind of um, commonwealth territory of the US, and marries a guy three times her age, uh, and they start two successful restaurants. He's a good chef, she kind of works the front of the house, it goes really well. And then the earthquake and tsunami hit Japan in 2011, and all tourism business really dries up in Saipan. And so they have to shut down those restaurants. They go from like really doing well in life to like being pretty broke. So in 2013, they get on a plane to come to New York City. They arrive in JFK, and they think, you know, we'll, we'll try to start another restaurant, Let's try to start another business, what have you. Uh, it doesn't work. And by this time, her husband is like, in his late 60s, uh, if not early 70s. He's really too old to kind of keep up with the chef work. And so providing for him and her all falls on her. Just like Tamar, her husband's not dead, but he cannot economically provide in the same way. So she has to figure out, what am I going to do? What resources do I have? I have ailing parents as well, getting older. What can I do? And so they essentially come, Tamar and Song Yang essentially come to a similar realization which is that they have very little skills and resources. You know, Yang Song is, doesn't speak English uh, fluently, doesn't have a degree here, and the main resource they have is their bodies. And so let's go back to Tamar. So imagine her, she's living in her, in her father's household. Decades have passed. You know, she's just like waiting 10, 20 years for this little boy to grow up so that they can get married, essentially. Uh, and then she hears that Judah, her father-in-law, is coming by town. So she thinks, oh, this is my chance to like, confront him, be like, you owe me a husband. Because she's also, I forgot to mention this, locked into the family. She cannot marry outside of it. If she does, she'll be like condemned for adultery, essentially. So she has no choice. She's like, I need this, I need this husband. Um, but she's probably thinking, like, he's going to ignore me. I mean, what, what will make him listen to me? He's been ignoring me for the past 20 years. Um, what situation can I essentially create such that I could have more negotiating power than I currently do, which is like none. So here's what happens. Genesis 38, 14 to 19. Uh, Tamar took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I will send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Essentially asking for collateral. Because he doesn't, he doesn't have cash with him, essentially. Um, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. You can tell Judah was feeling quite horny, because he was essentially willing to part with his ID. 
like, because he didn't have like cash in his wallet. And be like, you know, here's the ID, I'll come back with cash, and then give me the ID, what have you. There was no Venmo and stuff like that. And, and Tamar was essentially counting on this. Like, this is a situation in which she can negotiate for something that she, she needs and wants. And we'll see kind of what the payoff is, her, is for her soon. But I want to show these paintings of the scene between Tamar and, and Judah. Uh, this is a, done in the sort of Dutch 1700 school, but in the Rembrandt school. It's quite interesting. Here's another one, 19th century French painter trying to capture a similar. He was kind of really into painting like Oriental, so you can see that uh, influence over there. Um, but this moment in which someone is covered in a veil and this kind of transaction is happening. So here's, let's read what happens three months later. Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. She added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give to her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. I like how that's the conclusion to the story. Because <laughs> if not, he would have, you know, I don't know. And so, Tamar, I mean, this is like a, a pretty savvy woman, right? She kind of realizes, you know, if I need to procreate, but I cannot procreate outside of this family. And if I do, I will be penalized. I might be burned to death. And so I need to kind of engineer the situation where I can have enough negotiating power to get the evidence I need to protect myself to have children. It's like a very layered process. And it's, you know, her gamble pays off. She gives birth to twin boys. Um, she becomes, you know, the ancestor of King David, as I mentioned, and later down Jesus. But I want to focus on this line by Judah. She is more righteous than I. And so I think it's a super interesting statement because going back to what I shared earlier, Tamar in sort of our sort of standard evangelical views would not be seen as a righteous person. You know, she would be seen as a bad victim. She wasn't trafficked, she wasn't kidnapped, she willingly, so to speak, you know, sold her body, um, and so, you know, by right, she, be, she should be shamed, but here in our very own scripture, she is recorded as someone who is more righteous than Judah, you know, the sort of head of the tribe of Judah, you know, that the royalty uh, and, and sort of like our, our belief in Messiah has come from, and so why is that? Why does Judah make the statement? And I think there are a couple layers to it. Now, on one hand, obviously he recognizes he's a bit of a hypocrite, trying to burn someone to death while he's kind of doing the same thing. Um, but I think secondly, I, I think he probably recognizes that he put her in that situation, that his withholding of his third son is sort of forced her hand. And just so you know, like in, in sort of Torah, the laws are not that prostitution is universally, you know, bad or sentenced so bold to death, the daughters of priests are not allowed to do it. Kind of like the equivalent to like the daughters of our politicians, you know, are not allowed to do it, so to speak. But um, some commentators think that Tamal was actually the daughter of a priest, so you know, that's complicated. So, but it's all to say that he says, you know what, she should not be condemned. Really, I technically am the one that should be condemned because I was the one who abandoned her, right? Because I wanted to protect my own um, son. So we'll pause here from Tamar, and we'll go back to Yang Song. Thank you for bearing with me as I alternate between stories. So like Tamar, you know, Yang Song has to rely on her to survive. Like she, um, and so she, like Tamar, also chooses to work with her body. She starts by working as a home health aide, which is a common job for many kind of 
um, non-English speaking, uh, non-college educated immigrants of color. Um, and she takes a massage therapy course to like earn extra income. And then she hears that there's this more lucrative job on like 40th Road in Flushing, uh, where you can make like 80 bucks an hour, which is like way higher than like the 10 to 15 at best that you're getting. And she's like, wow, that could really help me out. I can help my parents, bring them over, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the job, you know, involves like sexual acts for money. And she's like, okay, you know, let me, let me try it. And she finds that uh, she's really good at it. Like she is like the hustler on the street who's bringing the most money. People, other women are jealous of her, but they're also friendly. You know, they come, are coming from similar situations. Um, one of her kind of colleagues slash competitors um, used to clean dishes and thought this was like just like a better, less degrading way of like finding work. Another one had a husband with a gambling addiction. Another one was a former reporter. Um, and so a bunch of things and all of them kind of face various kinds of economic uh, desperation. And so like Tamar, these women, including Yang Song, would be people we would you know, traditionally consider as bad victims. They were not trafficked, they're not kidnapped, they willingly you know, chooses, chose this job. But I think our, our notion of agency is so high. I mean, what, how, how do we define what is willingly? How do we define, you know, is it willingly if you migrate here and you, you don't speak the right language, you don't have the right skills, and you need to pay off maybe a debt you paid to get here, you need to pay childcare, you need to pay for healthcare costs, um, with, and you can't afford that with minimum wage, what choices do you have? So, and I do want to just put a quick caveat that everyone who engages in sex work kind of fits this profile. Some do it, you know, who are pretty comfortable using the extra cash to pay like college bills, some are sort of really high-end escorts, and some people find it like would choose it no matter what, even if it was not out of economic desperation. But I, I really do want to focus on sort of the most vulnerable of people within the sex work industry, those who are most likely to be arrested, um, which are predominantly, I think, black and Latina on trans sex workers of color in New York City. And there was a recent study put out, I mean, it's hard to obviously do a formal survey because it's illegal, um, but many um, sex workers interviewed um, have kids, right? And they just have housing instability, they might have kind of substance dependency, but they're not sort of the image of women that you might think of. They're like mothers who need ways to support their families. So back to Yang Song. By now she's 38, her street name is Cece. And she's financially empowered, really, for the first time. She's able to send money back home, send gifts. She's video chatting with her niece uh, on you know, um, WeChat or what have you. But then her parents noticed some weird things. Her brother noticed some weird things. Like this one time, she refused to turn on her video when talking to them because her face was like beat up by a man. And you know, her job at, for, as a sex worker pays well-ish. I mean, her rent is like, like, it was like $3,000 a month how much the landlords were charging. Um, but uh, it's also tough because if any abuse happens on the job, she can't report it to the police because they'll arrest her. Um, and so, in, in, particularly in America, the laws are much stricter than that of the Torah. No one who engages in sex work can be, uh, everyone who does so, not even daughters of politicians, is penalized. Um, there's jail time, all that kind of stuff. Even sharing an apartment with a sex worker, like you're a roommate or something, can get you arrested. Advertising your services online is also now illegal thanks to the Stop Enabling Tra Sex Traffickers, or SESTA Act. And I just wanna 
you know, briefly pause to say that this is sort of like an incredible double standard we have. That we think some uses of our body, some economic uses of our body, like athletes or physical therapists, are okay, and others are not. And those that are not are, you know, not coincidentally the, the only uses that, some, that women, cis, or trans are, have. And also that, you know, I asked earlier, what are some of the worst jobs you've had? And we, I asked that partly because we sort of assumed that sex work is sort of the most degrading job you could think of. But many of these women left more degrading jobs to find for this line of work. And so for all these reasons, these societal assumptions, these laws, Yang Song lacks legal protection on her job. And not only that, she can't unionize, she can't advocate for better wages, she can't like advertise online and find like and screen clients beforehand to make sure no one's like sketchy. And so she is much, much more likely systematically to be mistreated and abused on her job. The other reason why she can't really go to the police is that the police may do the very same thing to her. You know, sexual assault and misconduct is the second most reported form of misconduct by the police after excessive use of force. In fact, Yang Song, um, around this time, was like essentially raped by a police officer who held a gun to her head and forced her to perform oral sex. Um, if not, you know, he would report her or shoot her. And so many sex workers have a lot of fear of going to the police. So, the story, as you can probably tell, for Yang Song turns out quite differently than the story of Tamar. Tamar ends up, like, one, alive, um, a matriarch, uh, healthy. Judah, her, her reputation's restored. Judah recognizes he's in the wrong. Morality trumps law. The story of Yang Song, unfortunately, uh, takes a big turn around September and November 2017. Um, and around late September, she's arrested for a third time. Um, for, on a prostitution charge. She's held overnight and handcuffed, and she's forced by the court to undergo those mandatory counseling and social work sessions, actually, uh, in this case, led by a Christian nonprofit called Restore NYC. And you know, the counseling sessions are sort of like meant to like help women leave this lifestyle, if that makes sense, uh, and stay out of trouble, and with the assumption that they're the ones with the problem and an illness that, need, that counseling and social work can fix. Um, and it's, 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 it can be a kind of degrading process, actually. And Yang Song, by this time, it's her third time being arrested, having to go through these, this rigmarole sessions. If not, she go to jail. And she ends up texting her lawyer. And you see, um, I'll, I'll just read aloud, that she feels, quote, morally depraved and is, has been having thoughts of jumping from a building. She says, I've fallen so low I can't be saved. I used to be a woman who was very strong in her life, a strove for perfection in everything I did. I never thought that my life would turn out this way. I've truly failed. So contrast Yang Song to Tamar in some ways. Tamar, I think, at the end of the story, is holding her head up high. She's considered more righteous. She's remembered in our scriptures as an ancestor of some of our most important figures in scripture. And contrast her situation to Yang Song. A couple months later, there's a police raid on Yang Song's apartment. Um, an undercover cop essentially pretends to be a client, what have you. Police rush up. She panics, and it's unclear what happens, but she either jumps or is pushed off her second floor balcony and falls to the ground and dies from injuries. Um, her mother and brother fly in from China. They're trying to figure out what happened. They spent a whole year here. Um, they post like flyers on street corners, like, if you have any information about what happened, uh, please let us know. They really are heartbroken, and actually, I believe they might be Christian because uh, the mother is kind of taken in by a church, and her brother, when giving this interview, says, you know, I feel like Job in the Bible. And 
Although I'm glad that a local church you know, took them in, I believe it's the, that uh, Episcopal Church in Flushing. Um, at the same time, I think we have to recognize that as a church, kind of broadly speaking, we have some level of responsibility in the death of Yang Song. Um, and I say that because I think when we look at the values of our criminal justice system, values that say that if you do something wrong, you'll be locked up for the rest of your life, I can't help but think of our theologies of heaven and hell that say that if you believe or do the wrong things on this earth, you'll be locked up in hell for the rest of eternity. Or when our criminal justice system says to women that you should be punished and penalized for selling sex, even if this might be your only option, you can't help but think of like our values in our church that blame women and hold them responsible for like not having sex in the correct ways and not using the bodies in the correct ways. And so I really do think American political institutions, particularly in the West, if you trace the origins long enough, you'll get back to religion. You get back to religious institutions. And political history in America is essentially, in my opinion, religious history. Um, and so I want us to imagine, what if Tamar had lived in the United States? What if the, you know, she was trying to navigate this situation here? Like maybe she'd be waiting by the road, and Judah's coming by, and the police come, and they arrest Judah, they arrest her, they probably arrest Tamar's father for sheltering a prostitute, and they all go to jail. And the question is, who does that help? How is our society served? Who is more free? Um, and I think if Tamar had lived in America, there's a really good chance she would not have lived to become the ancestor of King David or of Jesus. You know, the equivalent of being like the ancestor of an American president or something like that. Um, you know, she would just, she would never be remembered as one who is more righteous. She would just be a statistic. And so, uh, you know, if, if you, and I, I do think a lot of people's motivations in trying to combat, you know, sex trafficking and what have you are good, but if people really want to do something to help, I do think the most important thing is to start by addressing the material conditions that drive people like Tamar or Yang Song into sex work in the first place. Lack of housing, livable wages, health care, and what have you. Um, and, but if we want to help current sex workers, the best way is to start by addressing the material conditions in which they currently work. And that can only happen if their work is decriminalized. And so we see in countries, very few countries have fully decriminalized it. Um, the best example is New Zealand, and even there, there's some caveats. It doesn't apply to migrant workers. But sex workers report a huge change in quality of life, quality of work, after their work has become decriminalized. And so I want us to kind of expand our moral imaginations. Like, we spend so much of our money and resources punishing and penalizing people, devoting money to police, judges, even social workers to like move people from A to B. And what if we just redirected that money from punishing people into actually helping people and giving them the money they need so that they can like actually choose jobs they want. And if it happens to be sex work, okay. But you know, for the majority of people, probably that's not gonna be it. And, they, and we, we can't talk about criminal justice system without also talking about our immigration system. The, law, the vulnerability that sex workers feel on the job is essentially the vulnerability that many undocumented uh, workers feel kind of throughout their lives. The fact that they can't go to the police because their very existence in this country is, can render them deportable. And, even, uh, and not to mention, obviously, that many sex workers are migrant workers themselves. So even in countries that have decriminalized, let's say, sex work, um, the immigration laws still make it such that sex workers can be deported or evicted by their landlords if their jobs are sort of discovered. And so I don't know if I just learned this through reading um, this book, Revolting Prostitutes, but uh, the, there are four kinds of people who in the US kind of bans from entering for like a 10-year period. 
Nazis, spies, terrorists, and sex workers. So, and there's, it's complicated, and we get more into, into that and sort of why that is and the, the fear of, you know, national purity and sexual purity. And uh, this sermon is not going to be exhaustive to talk about um, sex work and decriminalizing and why it's important. I encourage you to go to forefrontnyc.com slash cafe, Kinship Cafe, which is like our Zoom thing after service where we can discuss this more at length. Um, but I want to kind of bring it back essentially to the Bible. Because when I think about what Tamar did, um, you know, she, essentially her actions forced Judah to morally reckon with what he did. The, her actions kind of created a mirror by which she could kind of reflect and see, you know, how did my actions lead up to this particular moment in time? Like, what responsibility do I have to take? And I think, hopefully, Yang Song's life and death can hold up a similar mirror for us as a society and us as a church to look in the mirror and think about what, you know, what actions have we taken to lead up to this particular moment? And so maybe we will recognize, you know, as Judah did, the responsibility that as a church we bear in shaming women for choices around their body and sex. Or maybe we can, we'll recognize the choices we've made as a society that gives poor women a very narrow set of choices and then punishes them for making choices that they have to make to survive. And I, as we talk about criminalizing, uh, uh, dismantling purity culture, I truly believe that the, f the most important step we can take is decriminalizing sex work. That if we want to dismantle purity culture, um, we have to start with dismantling the laws that punish those who are most vulnerable and most impacted by the shame that we've created around sex. In the end, Judah says to Tamar, you are more righteous than I. And I can't help but think about what would have changed for Tamar, uh, for Yang Song, and all sort of people in her position if we had treated her with that kind of honor and respect and repentance. If we had said to her, you are more righteous than I am, it is us who have to repent for what we have done. And I think if we did that, perhaps she would still be alive today. Perhaps it would be one less grieving mother or heartbroken brother. So I know this is not an upper sermon, um, but I do think these are our stories in scripture that are important that we reckon with and we connect the dots to what's happening in the news and what's going on. And I do believe that the first step to change starts with prayer. So will you pray with me? God, we pray for justice. We pray for healing. We pray for, and we confess. We start to do all this by confessing, Lord, um, the ways in which we have privileged the sanctity of bodies over the sanctity of lives. Ways in which we have privileged our ideas of what um, bodies should do, our ideas of purity over the realities um, of people's working and living conditions. Although may we, our heart and, and empathy grow to expand to include people who we may have written off and we have made a lot of assumptions about. And I pray that we work towards a world in which um, people like Yang Song may be considered righteous, may be considered one day uh, matriarchal ancestors um, of some of our most important people in our society. May we hold her in the same level of respect um, as tomorrow. It was helpful. Pray for all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.